Welcome to Imaginal Inspirations with me, David Lorimer. This is a podcast in which I ask my guests about experiences, people, and books that have inspired their life and work. My guest today is Professor Richard Tarnas, one of the great cultural historians of our time and author of two seminal books, the first of which is The Passion of the Western Mind, a brilliantly written history of the Western worldview from ancient Greece to our own times, which is a spiritual complement for me at any rate to Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy. The second is Cosmos and Psyche, Intimations of a New Worldview, an equally magisterial book incorporating Rick's understanding of archetypal astrology. It also develops the work of C.G. Jung on synchronicity as a connecting principle between what we call inner and outer, subjective and objective. This book received the Scientific and Medical Network Book of the Year Prize and is the basis for his upcoming documentary series, The Changing of the Gods. Rick is professionally a professor of psychology and cultural history at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, where he founded the graduate program in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness. He teaches courses in the history of ideas, archetypal studies, depth psychology, and religious evolution. He was formerly director of programs in education at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, and is a past president of the International Transpersonal Association, as well as having served on the board of governors for the C.G. Jung Institute of San Francisco. It's a great pleasure to welcome you onto Imaginal Inspirations. And our first meeting, I think, goes back to the mid-1990s when I visited uh, San Francisco myself. And I remember visiting your house with this wonderful view. Tell us first uh, about a shaping moment involving your choice of work. First, David, thank you for uh, having me on uh, as part of your series, I'm genuinely honored to be among, among luminaries uh, that I that I admire just to be included. That's very kind of you and, and an honor. When I think back on on uh, a shaping moment uh, in in my life, I think uh, first of a kind of seed that was planted. I was in uh, university, uh, my undergraduate years, uh, Harvard University in, in Cambridge. It was 1968-69, my first year there, and of course, all the, all the university centers, the academic centers uh, in much of the Western world were kind of epicenters of countercultural uh, activity and, and you know, new ideas, new practices, uh, perspectives in philosophy, psychology, politics, the arts, et cetera, in the psychedelic revolution and so forth. So already there was a lot of ferment there and a sense of new horizons opening up. But an article was published in the uh, Harvard newspaper called, uh, the, the newspaper was called the Harvard Crimson. And it was a big two-page spread with uh, large headlines that I still remember in, in, in my mind's eye now that said, after Harvard, Esalen, with a big question mark. And uh, it was an excellent article by someone just a year or two older than me who had gone to Esalen and explored what was happening there. And his account of it was, was so compelling that it, it planted a seed that I wanted to go to California after I left university. And then the year after I left university, I was working in the inner city of uh, Detroit with uh, heroin addicts uh, and for a National Institute of Mental Health program. 
and thinking about I really wanted to get a, a doctorate of the PhD so that I'd have a little more autonomy in my profession and so forth. So I I uh, was looking at up where what universities would be good ones, a lot of the traditional usual suspects. And then I saw, first of all, one uh, school, it's now called the Saybrook Institute, that at that time, this is the early 70s, offered uh, the possibility of the student playing a role in shaping their curriculum and and perhaps getting some of their uh, teaching from other institutions. And then the other thing is that there was also an account of Stanislav Gross' work uh, with uh, Abraham Maslow's famous uh, description of it as being the most important contribution to our understanding of the human psyche. He was the world's expert in psychedelic therapy and LSD therapy. And I thought anybody who's done work for you know 20 years with uh, such a range of patients and has come up with such a powerful synthesis, I wanted to study with him, including a synthesis of Eastern mystical understandings and shamanic practices with the Western psychodynamic uh, understanding that came out of Freud and Jung and so forth. Then I read about Esalen Institute in the same volume and thought, I want to go there. And I wrote Stan Groff, thinking he was in Maryland. The letter came back from Esalen, where he had just joined as, as scholar in residence and said, I, I would uh, enjoy uh, meeting you if you came here. So I thought it's all coming together. And uh, Saybrook accepted me and said, Esalen would be the perfect place for you to begin your explorations. You know, Joseph Campbell was there and, and uh, Gregory Bateson and Houston Smith and so forth, as well as Stan. And so uh, I went there and ended up living there for 10 years, studying, also became director of programs there and, and eventually uh, uh, co-teaching with Stan for much of the last 40 years. So that was a that was kind of a sequence of turning points that just uh, really did shape uh, life after that point. And did you connect these at the time, you know, looking back on the Harvard article and then the other places you read about Esalen and, and realize that this is maybe part of something that was unfolding in your life? I got that feeling the day I walked into Esalen. March 3rd, 1974, it still has resonance in my mind. Um, And I had such a sense of, first of all, the place is is a magnificent, just physically, uh, you know, on the cliffs of the Pacific Ocean, the the, um, Santa Lucia Mountains, uh, the, the beautiful hot springs, the huge redwoods. It's one of the most beautiful places on earth. But it was also a place where all these amazing people, teachers, practices, were happening right at, at a kind of, you know, frontier of uh, consciousness exploration. And then meeting Stan himself and what unfolded and I, on that first night I met him at dinner, really a kind of sense, not making too big of a point of it, but of a, of a kind of karmic mm, connection. Connection and, and also, as you put it, like that something was unfolding here that was had a kind of feeling of destiny, which is a whole different feeling than one can often lead one's life, which I think I had for several years prior to that, which is even though lots of things were happening that were exciting or were challenging, I still had the sense that I was making my way through a kind of, you know, random cosmos that I was bringing my best, you know, wits and imagination uh, to and my uh, flawed capacities and hoping to basically 
live a, a decent life, you know, that, and then suddenly there's more of a feeling that uh, this was meant to be and, and, and things that I'd been studying all my life started coming together in new ways. So with, with a sense of fulfillment, uh, like a teleological kind of unfolding. Absolutely. Sounds like that. And I imagine that Stan was probably your major mentor but, and, and maybe some of the other people there as well, because the, the, the names you mentioned, that they're all very well-known people with, with great wisdom and culture. All of them did influence me in different ways, and they each had certain insights that have stayed with me ever since, and there's no question about that, as well as others that I didn't mention. Stan was, was if I had to say that I had a, one mentor in my life, uh, it would be Stan. Um, he's a man of great wisdom, uh, great humility, tremendous breadth of experience, you know, depth of knowledge, multicultural knowledge, and, and so forth. But uh, also a kind of courage uh, in his own self-explorations and his holding space for thousands of other people to basically face some of the most existentially uh, challenging things that a human being can face, you know, facing their own death, facing uh, deep uh, traumatic memories, metaphysically disorienting experiences and so forth, and help and having them trust the process, um, trust trust the unfolding of their psyche, uh, because he had a sense that there was an inner wisdom that was working out beyond any theory that he might impose on it, uh, or that any other therapist might impose on it. And that, that had a big uh, influence on me. I think he, if I think of a single piece of advice or guidance, you know, uh, it would be that, that sense of trusting wh whatever is unfolding, even in the moment where it's feeling like, let's say, in a... Very in challenging. A, yeah, an extraordinary state of consciousness where, you know, any of, anybody who's done deep, say, psychedelic uh, work is aware that you can f face some you know, quite uh, terrifying places, metaphysically, psychologically, even a feeling of your body being in mortal danger uh, and going through that kind of experience. And he said to me early, I think actually it was the first lecture I heard him give, and I asked him a question afterwards, and he said, the full experience of an emotion, including the most negative emotions, is in some sense the funeral pyre of that emotion, it releases the energies that it, you, you have to bring them to consciousness out of the locked places they're in the body and the, and the deep psyche. And once they come to consciousness and are, uh, they can be released and, and the experience can be integrated. And that, that had a big effect on me because it helps both the trust in that kind of a, of a, of a journey, but also it helps with a sense of trust in life itself. The two are, are so overlapping. This, and this is part of a what you might call a death rebirth process, which is very characteristic of Stan's work. That's right. I, I think of Stan's work as being a kind of postmodern um, reincarnation of the ancient mystery religions, uh, and there, and also the you know shamanic uh, rites of passage and indigenous uh, and traditional societies have carried that kind of initiatory practice and and wisdom for millennia and to a great extent modernity lost the not only those practices but the the cosmological and metaphysical frame of reference within which such initiatory experiences made sense and 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 were, were contextualized and as a result it sets up a feedback loop because if you don't have the initiatory experiences you don't 
access the deeper vision of of a spiritual dimension of the of the universe and of oneself. And if you don't have that larger frame of reference, kind of living in the culture, then you don't have the practices that could access and open up that larger understanding of things. So it's a you can see how it's a mutually reinforcing kind of prison. Absolutely fascinating. So I'm coming on now to some of the books that might have influenced you at different phases of your life. Yes. I'm glad you, you, you phrased it in terms of phases because uh, I'm sure this is true in your life and, and uh, all of our uh, listeners. And that is different books kind of catalyze insights at different stages of life. And I think Certainly, in my in my teens, the, the the crucial works were like the four great novels of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. I mean, they they just had such they really had a kind of transformational effect on me, as I know they did on many people. Uh, you know, the the nineteenth century novel really kind of carried a, a center of the moral culture coming out of Europe for many people. And Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, I think, War and Peace, Anna Karenina. Crime and Punishment, and uh, and of course Brothers Karamazov. Each of those, I don't know, for a 16, 17 year old, they just uh, went very deep, and I, I, they still live in me. And then, uh, but getting into university years, I'd say Thomas Kuhn's two major works at that point: the the Copernican Revolution, and then the Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which kind of grew out of the earlier work. They had a huge influence on me and continue to, I think, the Copernican Revolution and the insight that Kuhn brought of all the kind of cultural, philosophical, religious uh, factors that also inform the scientific imagination that makes possible something like a paradigm revolution. That it isn't just a straightforward new data, new empirical uh, uh, evidence uh, brings a better theory. It's much more interesting and complex than that. And so Kuhn had a, had a big effect on me. Also, well, Ram Dass just came back from India at that point, while I was at Harvard, uh, had changed his name from Richard Alpert. His lectures at that point were influential, as was uh, Alan Watts's uh, Beyond Theology. Then in my 20s, the big influences were Stan Gross, Realms of the Human Unconscious, James Hillman's Revisioning Psychology, uh, Jung's Answer to Job, which is kind of his great prophetic work. Each of those were had a big influence. And then finally, I'd say the last 10 years, the two books that have made a big difference in my understanding of, of a larger kind of evolutionary drama that is happening, kind of moral, spiritual, philosophical unfolding, uh, the, the idea of an arc of the moral universe unfolding, even in our dramatically challenged postmodern era. Those two books were Robert Bella's Religion and Human Evolution and Charles Taylor's um, Sources of the Self. Those two, and there are other works, but particularly those two, each is an, a magnum opus, a, a huge kind of historical vision. Um, but they allowed me to have a lot more pieces to the puzzle that I'd been working with uh, over the years. And I, I hope to bring to, to fruit uh, uh, to to bear in further works, I, I, oh, I left out all the all the great um, kind of feminist works that also really shaped me, starting in the nineteen eighties. You know, from Charlene Spretnak uh, and uh, Catherine Keller uh, from A Broken Web, 
and uh, Evelyn Foxkeller, uh, Gender and Science. These were uh, Ann Baring uh, and Jules Cashford, uh, who, of course, are uh, friends of yours. Their work on the evolution of, of the divine feminine had, had a big influence, too. So all those uh, have played a role. It's a rich mix. Uh, I, I like the way that you developed that in different cycles and also coming to understand the important scope of the development of consciousness within culture, which many of these books are addressing. And then, Rick, what about um, a shaping moment in your own understanding of consciousness, um, some moment of transformation, if you like? Yes. Well, the kind of systematic discipline of LSD sessions in, in my second half of my 20s, 1975 to 80, those were those brought uh, quite a few epiphanic moments that really shaped me. And I, it would be too much to unpack uh, all them, you know, opening up the archetypal perspective, the nature of the anima mundi, the sense of all of life being in a kind of great process of overcoming the past and birthing the new in uh, at every level all of creation groaneth in travail for the birth of a of a, of a new being through us uh, in some sense um, many many insights along that line but in a in terms of something that you know might be more shareable people might appreciate I'd always been working with the issue of why if we modern civilization, modern, the modern mind is the first kind of mentality that has fully recognized that the earth is moving and it is not the center, the fixed center of, of, of the universe. And there can be a lot of pride in that modern perspective that we're, we're the one courageous enough form of thinking that recognizes that the human being is not the center of everything. I thought, why is it that that non-geocentric position is nevertheless found in a civilization that is rather peculiarly anthropocentric compared with indigenous and primal cultures. I couldn't figure out. And, and uh, because they're much less anthropocentric while they are geocentric. In some sense, they're Gaia-centric. And one day I was reading a little column by a woman in uh, the New York Times who was writing about what it was like to be a new mother. She had two very young children, but she was away from them on Mother's Day. And she wrote how hard that was, but she said something, just one sentence. She said, the center of the child's universe is the mother. And all of a sudden, I realized that for primal cultures, really for most cultures prior to modernity, the center of their universe was the was the earth? It was the land they were in. There was the it was the ensouled ancestral land and the and the earth itself, and they were embedded in it. It's not that the human being was the center of the universe. No, it was like the the earth was the center, and that what happened with the the great Copernican breakthrough and the modern scientific uh, mind, scientific revolution generally, was a tremendous identification with the sun that the light of reason that could shine a light through the whole universe, we can rationally understand the universe and rise above the earth, as it were, rise above nature, rise above our bodies, and understand it rationally. And that in some sense, the heliocentric revolution had brought about a kind of heliocentric modern self, which was at the same time 
uh, it, no longer geocentric, that there was a kind of negation of the earth, mm. a disenchantment of the earth, mm. uh, an objectification of it, because uh, we were superior to it. That was a huge breakthrough for me. It, it set in motion a number of other insights that I won't go into, but in terms of a, of a crucial one. Can I, can I just go back for a moment to your experimentations with LSD and ask if you find parallels with the insights of Chris Beige, whose LSD in the Cosmic Mind came out recently. And I, I found this extraordinarily penetrating in terms of my understanding or expanding my understanding of consciousness. Yes. Uh, you know, Chris, Chris and I have been friends for years. I helped get his first book published. Dark Night, Early Dawn. Dark, Dark Night, Early Dawn. And we were about the same age. I was working with Stan all those years while he was, in, in some sense, more isolated there in Ohio. Didn't know Stan, but just was reading his books. And so he was doing his work on his own there. He brought a, a crucial um, insight that's expressed in Dark Night, All Early Dawn, as well as in an earlier paper that I found very valuable. The basic idea that... The reason that the perinatal experiences are, uh, that is the experiences of face, of reliving birth, facing death, and everything that Groff has described as part of the phenomenology of that deep level of psycho-spiritual exploration, existential dread, and, and, but also the, you know, going through it to the, the great, the, the spiritual breakthrough that can, can happen when one surrenders to it. Beish brought the crucial insight that Part of the explanation for why it is so intense and that it seems to transcend the individual, to, to use Stan's terms, it transcends what you would previously have thought was an individual would be capable of experiencing. Um, it seems to embrace all of humanity. It seems to embrace something as big as the planet. So those are things that Stan had said for many years. But then Chris brought up the idea that in some sense, the entity that is going through this great death rebirth transformation is more than the individual it's it's actually as he would call it the species mind in some sense he decentered the individual egoic locus and moved it to to the larger um, collective human soul collectively uh, that was a that was that was very important and it connected in doing so, of course, he's drawing on a long tradition of thinking in those terms. It's, that's that's deep in Christianity, for example. Um, you know, Christ on the cross uh, and and being resurrected is he's carrying the archetypal human, and all human beings are are in some sense participating in that. And uh, you know, many people have had that insight, but but Chris brought it within into the um, Groffian frame of reference in a way that that uh, Stan also liked very much. And Chris has gone on to other you know, perspectives and so forth that I, that I won't comment on here. But the, that particular insight, I think, was pivotal and permanently valuable. I think that's a very useful elaboration, uh, Rick. Um, and coming on to how how's your understanding of what we've been talking about in terms of consciousness influence the way you live your life? And maybe you could also bring in the influence of Jung, and some thoughts on synchronicity, because I think this may be part of the unfolding process that you're referring to. Yeah, I'd say in answer to the first part of your, your question, and this is kind of continuous with what I've been saying already, more and more, you know, starting in my 20s and uh, beyond, I just got more and more of a sense of 
being able to trust the psyche, trust, trust life, trust the cosmos itself in its unfolding, even when things are not going the way I wanted. And, you know, including like very, like very difficult things or tragic things. I, you know, I, I had a, an automobile accident, for example, just before Passion of the Western Mind came out, where I just, you know, broke bones head to toe and, you know, kind of had to reconstruct my face and everything. It was quite traumatic, but it also gradually uh, I was able to recognize deeper meaning in what had happened and, and to just, I mean, not to get too hung up on that particular event, but just in general, something about life... We die into life, Goethe's great insight about until you know this deep, deep secret. Die and become. Die and become. Verde, he says. You will be a stranger on this dark earth. And I think that, that trusting, even through the dying process, in the many ways we, we die, it has been really important. And actually, Jung himself, he once describes like, God is what trips you up when you're on your way to somewhere else and the numinous uh, comes in and tends to be a defeat for the ego, but in doing that is a, uh, is a victory for the, for the higher self. Now, one of the great things about Jung's later work is that he formulated this idea of synchronicity, that there are, you know, these, these uh, events that once you're alert to them, you can recognize the, the coherence of meaning between outer events and what's going on internally where you can recognize there's no straightforward mechanistic or linear causality that's connecting them but rather it's meaning itself that is connecting them and of course this is Jung's bringing back the deeper sense of causality that Aristotle had where there's formal cause namely the, the meaning the, the form that connects the inner and outer uh, events or the multiple events in a larger coherence a higher meaning but uh, a deeper pattern. Remember, remember Bateson's uh, phrase, the pattern which connects. But he also was bringing that other side of Aristotle's sense of causality, which is that, uh, and that's the final cause, the te teleological cause, that synchronicities seem to be also serving a purpose. They're moving us towards wholeness. Uh, and recognizing that those synchronicities, first of all, can help reconnect the solitary life to the fact that we are embedded in an ensouled world that is carrying meanings that live inside us as well as outside of us. And, and that, that's deeply healing in itself to kind of come out of the cold, so to speak. But also synchronicity is in some sense, and it's, it's an invitation to a mystery uh, that's unfolding. It doesn't tell you the answers, but it suggests that um, something more is going on than uh, just random events in life and and that there may be a deeper uh, intelligence or in wisdom and purpose at work in the un unfolding of things. So alertness to synchronicities also which requires self-discernment so you don't project meaning where yes. you know where it isn't you know which is which is a temptation where you need to li live in a meaningful world or you need to make that thing that event, build up your ego or something like that. It's often the synchronicity, you know, trips one up, as Jung would say. It knocks you out of your your, your previous uh, line of planning. So I think uh, you're right to bring in synchronicity as something that can enhance 
what I started to talk about, uh, namely this sense of having a trust in the in the timing of things, in the unfolding of things, and sometimes things take a long time. And I, I've come to appreciate that, like it's a biblical phrase, uh, in the fullness of time. There's something about the, the fullness of time brings a, a fulfillment that can't be hurried, and that if it is hurried, then it's premature, uh, and it, it needs it to have its own organic timing, and to learn to trust that, I think, has been an important... Life um, lesson, as it were. Yeah, yeah, a habit uh, to, uh, to cultivate, uh, a virtue to cultivate, uh, an attitude to cultivate, let's put it that way. One of the things that, talking about synchronicity tripping you up, there was an Irish woman who said, what is in the way is the way. Ah, that, that gives very you, good. Gives you a yeah. similar, similar kind of uh, message. Then, Rick, um, is there a quotation that um, is very meaningful to you, uh, something by which you live your life or which you reflect on frequently or which reflects some, in some way this unfolding process we've been talking about? Yes. There's been so many wise things said, you know, in, in single sentences that I've, I've kind of uh, taken to heart. You know, I could uh, bring up many, but particularly, I, I suppose, one that is very precisely relevant to what we've been talking about. And, and in some sense, I carry it in my mind's eye above my desk every, every day. It's a poem by a Japanese poet, Issa, and the, and the, the poem is... Oh, snail, climb Mount Fuji, but slowly, slowly. Uh, that has meant a lot to me because my life has in some, I mean, in some ways I could say it's moved very, very quickly. Uh, and, you know, in some ways my, my mind seems to move with great uh, speed. But in other ways, I'm very slow. I'm, a, I'm methodical, like cautious and, and thorough uh, and the result has been that I've only had two books out. They're, they're big books, um, but I've only published two books in my life. And, um, in a, and while I've got several to go and I've got these notes uh, and everything's kind of getting close to being able to bring out more, but I've had to have a great deal of trust in how long it takes to, you know, I took 10 years with Passion of the Western Mind, full-time working on it, and then uh, another 15 years on Cosmos and Psyche, and um, I couldn't have done them faster. So, oh, snail, climb Mount Fuji, but slowly, slowly. And thoroughly, as you just said. <laughs> and then, would you have any advice you'd give to your younger self, looking back from uh, just having celebrated your 70th birthday? I think probably if my younger self, say going back to my adolescent years, uh, which is often, I suppose, when we most need counsel from our later self, it would be along the line of what I'm saying, that, the, that there is a longer, larger process at work. And where you are now is in some sense a kind of, you know, it's a chrysalis of the future. And the way I feel at this point or the way I, uh, how much I can see at this point when I'm 17 years old or whatever, is not necessarily determinative of how I'm going to feel in, in future years. 
and to trust that uh, unfolding that they're that they're not only that significant things can still come beyond what seems to be an intolerable present, but that the intolerable present may in some uh, particular way be essential to the unfolding of what is to come. To have that kind of uh, counsel, I think, would have been very nourishing to me. Um, would have given you a lot of assurance, which yeah. we now see uh, was, was fully justified. Yeah, and at the same time, of course, um, I clearly needed to do it without that assurance. <laughs> you know, Indeed, at that time, I mean, that do. was... Yeah, exactly. We all do. That, that, that's, that too is part of the, 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 the birth process. We don't really understand why we're losing the womb. We're going through a loss in order to, uh, you know, of, of, of our whole kind of aquatic uh, form of being to becoming an, a, an autonomous biological entity born out of our mothers. And that's kind of a paradigm of how we are um, constantly having to let go of of the past, even as precious as it is, may have been, um, in order to allow the, the, the future to be born. Life has to be lived forwards, but can only be understood backwards. Yes, very wise. And uh, I was reading it actually just a couple of months ago. It's in one of Kierkegaard's journals, writing there in the 1840s and 50s. Indeed. Um, well, Rick, thank you so much for coming on Imaginal Inspirations and bringing your life experience and wisdom for our listeners. Well, it's been an honor. I love your work, David. You've, you've done so much with the Scientific and Medical Network for all of us and, and mediating our, our larger community uh, in, in the ways that you have. It's been a great blessing for many of us. Thanks so much. <laughs>